I want you to start this morning by trying to imagine a scene. I know this is a stretch, but try. You're on trial for murder. I mean, that's a great way to start a sermon. You're on trial for murder, and you've been held in custody without bail. You're stuck in jail with your life hanging in the balance, and the courtroom drama concerning your trial has been dragging on for many months, and your strength is just drained out of you. The stress of it all has just broken you down physically. You can feel it in your body and in your soul, in your mind. You're just, you're a shadow of what you once were. But finally, the big day arrives. You hear that the verdict is in. And as you're sitting there in the courtroom, you're in the seat of the accused. And you know that as this foreman of the jury stands up, your life, everything is hanging right in this moment. You're your heart is pounding out of your chest. You know that whatever he says now, there's one or two options. Either you are going to live a life of confinement or you have total freedom. Think about that. Binary choice. Life of confinement, total freedom. He stands up and he says, Your Honor, the jury finds the defendant not guilty. Have you ever watched a, a trial where that happens, where the person is found not guilty? The just the, the wave of relief that would come across such a person, the tears of joy start to flow out of his or her eyes, not guilty. This massive weight that you've been carrying is suddenly lifted from your shoulders, and then it becomes very practical. The bailiff comes over, and he, he takes your handcuffs off, and you hear the judge declare from on high, you are free to go. Wow. You're free from all condemnation, free from confinement, free from the stress of any charges against you, free to begin a new life. Can you imagine the feeling? Well, you should. Every believer, everyone who is found in Christ this morning should understand exactly how that feels. David certainly did. He knew both sides of that same coin. He knew how it felt to have Yahweh pressing down upon him because of his sin, his unconfessed sin. And he also knew the great joy and relief of experiencing God's cleansing and forgiveness. So we're going to look at that today. Grab your Bibles and let's go to this book of Psalms. We're looking at two Psalms today, Psalm 6 and 32. So we'll flip back and forth. So however your Bible is arranged with that little marker, what do, you, what do we call that marker? What is that thing? The ribbon. Is it called the ribbon? We still have ribbons in our Bibles? <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Oh, on your phone. Okay, is there a way to do that on your phone? See? See, I have two ribbons on my Bible. See how that works? It's amazing. It's a Spurgeon Bible, of course, two ribbons. All right, these are what we call penitential psalms. Penitential psalms, and that word simply means pertaining to or proceeding from Repentance. So this morning's message is, is about drilling down deeply into that important subject. There are seven penitential psalms in the entire collection, and Psalm 6 is the first of those seven. They are songs of humility and confession before the Lord, written by true worshipers of Yahweh, who had fallen into sin, but now had come back to him, returned to him with tears of repentance. And, and listen, because the, the nature of human beings doesn't change, over 3,000 years, these psalms are as practical today for us 
in our lives because we are all still dealing with the issue of personal sin, right? Good. So they're very practical and very instructive for us. Now, both of these psalms have titles or superscriptions, right? If you have Psalm 6 open, you'll see that it's authored by David and it's addressed to the choir director, right, who would have been the choir director in Israel in David's time, with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre. Now, I did not see our worship team playing with such a thing this morning, and I'm very disappointed. It would have looked like this. Grant, do you have one of those? Nope. Okay. An eight-string lyre. I guess maybe the closest thing we have today was somewhere between a guitar and a harp. Is that fair, Gabe? Yeah. Okay, good. So that's what it'll look like. Now, Psalm 32 is not as detailed in its description. It's simply titled a Psalm of David, but then it's called what you see there, a maskil. Now, what is a maskil? Now, there's so much time, you know, between us and ancient Israel, so many cultural changes that, to be honest, scholars aren't completely sure what that is. However, there is a similar Hebrew word found in the prophecy of Amos where it's translated prudent or having insight. So the best way to understand this, I think, is David wrote this as an artistically molded song that was designed to impart wisdom to his audience, insight to his audience. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 32 in particular, especially for church history nerds, woo, this was Augustine's favorite psalm. In fact, he had it inscribed on his wall by his bed so that he could meditate upon it each and every day, which is a wonderful discipline. If it's one of your goals, and it should be, to live a life of continual repentance before the Lord, to inscribe that on your wall makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? Now, when we talk about this concept of repentance, it's important to understand what the word means. What did the biblical authors intend to convey when they used that word? Well, the Hebrew word for, that we find most often for repentance is teshuvah, the root of which is this Hebrew verb shuv, which means to return or to turn back. Now that word shuv is found more than a thousand times in the Old Old Testament, not always related to repentance. Sometimes it's just the word that's used to simply describe somebody who returns from a place they had once left. But in particular places, that word is used to describe Yahweh's demand that his people abandon their idolatrous ways and return to him in faith. Walk away from idolatry and turn back to him. And then it's usually followed with a promise that if you will do that, I will then restore you. I will, I will bring prosperity to you. I will bring you back to the land and on and on and on. Always that promise when his people come back in true repentance. I'll give you some examples. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, return, there's that word, return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul According to all that I command you today, you and your sons, right, generational, then the Lord your God will restore you, have compassion on you, and gather you again. Hosea also speaks of it. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And then probably the most famous from Joel chapter 2, yet even now declares the Lord. And what's beautiful, Joel is describing the day of the Lord, the very last moment of the end of days. He says, even now, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart, not your garments, 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And this is a constant theme in the prophets, isn't it? This idea over and over again, the people of of Israel stray, right? And over and over and over again, Yahweh calls them to turn back. Constantly gracious, turn back. And, and yes, there are times when you see that repentance exhibited in physical ways with things like fasting and the wearing of sackcloth and sitting in ashes. But as you can see in that passage from Joel, what God wants most is not just ritual, he wants their hearts, right? He wants their submission and their humility and their obedience. And then the Lord promises, I will see your changed hearts. I will hear your weeping and I will gladly have mercy and compassion upon this people that I love. These are great examples for us, aren't they? Now in the Greek New Testament, the the word for repent is metanoeo, metanoeo. I love my names in there. See that? I, just every time I write that out, it just, it's wonderful. It means to, literally means to change one's mind or to change one's thinking, right? But the implication being not just changing the mind, but the mind driving the direction of life, right? It's an about face. When the authors of the Greek New Testament speak of repentance, it's an about face. Turning our hearts away from ourselves and self-rule and turning back to God and submission to his rightful authority. So we've got to know those words. All right, next let's talk about the context and the background of these two psalms. Both of them obviously have to do with sin in David's life, but neither of them tell us which particular sins are being discussed. Okay, So this much we do know. As great a king as David was, and as much as he was a man after God's own heart, as important as he, a role as he plays in the trajectory of biblical history, and he does, right? He was not that different from you and I. Not that different. He had highs and he had lows with his walk with God. David had significant seasons in his life where he became prideful, where he became spiritually lazy, where he showed poor judgment, times when he wasn't sensitive to the Spirit's leading. This is one of the great things about David is he he serves as such a great example for us in so many ways we can identify with him. Now, we know, of course, everybody knows when we think of David's sin, we instantly think of Bathsheba, and we should. It's, It's pretty awful. And then, of course, arranging for the murder of her husband Uriah. But there's also... A lesser-known sin, the arrogant, self-gratifying measure he took in numbering his military forces in 2 Samuel 24, right, which was treachery against the Lord. It's a, it's a good read, 2 Samuel 24. What's interesting is that took place after his sexual sin with Bathsheba, which means he should have known better, right, because we'd like to think we grow as we, as we sin and we repent. We'd like to think that we grow and we, we don't show that foolishness again. But David certainly did. He was older and wiser, and yet he did this foolish thing. And that tells us that sin is always crouching at the door of a man's heart, isn't it? doesn't matter if you get gray on your, your temples as you get older. Sin is still crouching, still wants to grab hold of you. And so we've got to stay on alert, right? Repentance is never just a one-time thing. We we tend to get in that, well, I had this big giant sin and I really repented and so therefore now I can put things on cruise control. That is not the way the Christian life is. To the contrary, staying alert and battling temptation and repenting each time we fall, that is to be a normal part of a Christian rhythm in our lives. 
Now, the thing that ties Psalm 6 and 32 together is not just David's sin, but the process that he went through to get to the place of repentance. In both cases, his sin with Bathsheba and the numbering of his military force, listen, David failed to deal with his sin in a timely way. He let it linger and didn't bring it to the Lord. Instead of openly and honestly acknowledging his rebellion and confessing the sin, he did, he took a path that we all take at times in our lives. And this is one of those times to, to say la, to really reflect, to consider your own heart. Because, man, when you, by the way, when you prep a message on repentance, it's a killer. <laughs> it's just like a giant mirror in front of your face. And so I feel this with you. But this is a path we all take too commonly. We, we keep quiet about our sin. We, we don't bring it up. We don't want to talk about it. We try not to think about it. We, we cover it up if we have to. We shove it down deeply into the deepest parts of our hearts and we close that door and we hope it just goes away. But it doesn't. And David should have known better. We should all know better than to hide things from a God who sees all, right? It's just, it's such foolishness. Not only does God see all, he actually he actually sees the motivation of our heart behind the sins that we commit. And yet we think we can hide. But we can't identify with David's failure in this. I think everybody in this room can say, I get it, I've been there, done it. Because nobody is like, nobody relishes the thought of confession. Nobody's super excited, right, to, to have to go into a, my prayer closet and deal with the ugly parts of my character before the Lord. Nobody's excited about doing that. So we tend to just put it out of our minds. We think that it'll magically go away. And, and the best way I can compare this to just real practically is, you know that first time when you drink something or eat something and you feel the pain of a cavity? You know that feeling, right? Cold drink, ah, and you wince in pain. What do you think instantly? Oh, that'll go away. If I just don't think about it, if I drink on the other side of my mouth, that's just going to go away. But we know in our hearts it doesn't just go away. You can't just, it just doesn't get fixed like that. We know that there's a serious thing happening. We know that we've got to deal with it. And that's only going to get fixed when we go to the dentist's office. And the same thing is true with our sin. Now, ultimately, David got to that point. He realized there was something very, very wrong in his life, that the pain he was feeling had become too severe to ignore, and he knew, I am under the discipline of Yahweh because of my sin. And then from that bitter experience of suffering in that way, he wrote these psalms to tell you and I, 3,000 years later, about the destructive nature of sin and what happens when you try to conceal it but also the joy of what happens when you finally come and bring it openly and honestly before the Lord, the joy of that restoration of your relationship. And that's what these Psalms are about. So look at verse one here in Psalm six. David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. That word means I'm languishing. I'm, I'm faint from this. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. They're troubled. My, literally, my bones are in agony, and my soul is greatly dismayed. Look at this. But you, O Lord, how long? 
Now drop down to verse 6 where he goes on. He says, I am weary with my sighing or my groaning. I'm worn out by it. Every night I make my bed swim. <laughs> what, what a metaphor, right? You, you picture, yeah, a bed swimming. No. Obviously, I flood my bed with tears every night because of the pain I'm in. I dissolve or drench my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It's become old or weak because of all my adversaries. Now, flip over to Psalm 32 with your ribbon. Find verse 3. Psalm 32, 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality or strength was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So, so David portrays the impact of this discipline he's under in very drastic terms, both emotional and physical weight. It's affecting his body, his soul, his mind. He's in anguish all the way down to his bones. He feels it in his whole person. His strength is being drained away by this. His eyes are sore from weeping. His sleep is restless. He can literally feel the heaviness of God's hand upon him in discipline. And the reason is right there in verse 3. He says, I kept silent about my sin. That's the reason. I kept silent. So I, I resolved to stay silent. I persistently and stubbornly decided to keep silent and refused to deal with my transgressions. And now he's suffering. This is the consequences for a believer of trying to live a double life. It's a miserable place to be. A life where you profess to love God, where you claim to follow him, but at the same time you're living independent of him, doing as you please and not confessing sin. It's a double life. Doesn't mean you're not saved. I'm just saying we can live in seasons like this where we are attempting in misery to live a double life. So what we learn is obvious, right? As a professing believer, if you bottle up sin in your soul and you don't deal with it before the Lord, it's like acid that leaks out and then eats you from the inside. It wears you out because God is not going to let you sin with impunity. If, if you are his child, he will not let you sin with impunity. No father, no father would allow that to happen. No father that cares about his children, right? Spurgeon once said this. He said, God's hand is very helpful when it uplifts, but it is awful when it presses down. That is true. When we keep quiet about our sins, God intends for us to feel worn out. He intends for us to groan under the weight of that. Why? To bring us back to himself, back into fellowship with him, to make things right, to restore peace and joy in your relationship with him. The great news of being under God's discipline, and this is so important, is he's not ignoring you. That's the worst thing, that God would ignore you. But he's not. God's discipline is not primarily a task of his displeasure. It's a sign of adoption. It's a sign that you are a legitimate son or daughter of the king. And that's what Hebrews 12 tells us. It says, whoop, there we go. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. And this is obviously true even in human relationships. Parents, when you discipline your child, of course you're not pleased by their choices. That's obvious. But their sin doesn't cause you to reject them, right? Their sin doesn't cause you to cease in your love for them, right? So David's misery in these psalms is a good thing. It demonstrated that he is in fact a child of God and that his father is not going to let him remain comfortable with unconfessed sin. That's an important principle. So recognizing that here in back, going back to Psalm 6, David pleads for God's mercy. He says, Lord, don't rebuke me any longer. Lord, don't chasten me anymore. Be gracious to me. He begins to he begins to go through this process where he's actually asking the Lord to shorten his trial, to lessen the pain. He says, Lord, how long? How much longer do I have to submit to this? How much longer will you permit the suffering in my life? So with that sort of stage set, and we'll get to the good news in a little bit, let's talk about some important theological terms and what they mean to us in terms of these things. Look at these words on the screen. Sin, guilt, regret, shame, repentance. Do, do we have a good handle on what those terms actually mean? How they connect together? How they get us to the place that we need to be at? Which is genuine repentance before the Lord. Biblically, the terms sin and transgression and iniquity, these are words that David uses in these psalms. There's a range of meaning there, starting with this idea of missing the mark. God has a standard or mark and we miss it. But it also means turning aside from obedience. It means rebellion. It means refusing to submit to God's rightful authority. And in terms of iniquity, it means being crooked or bent or twisted or distorted. These are serious words. Sin is a serious thing. Sin always involves turning away from the true source of life and goodness which is the creator God, and turning towards temporary earthly things. Things that we find in ourselves, things we find in the material world. So you're turning from the divine, you're turning toward the flesh. The story of humanity is, as the saying goes, fallen beings looking for life and love in all the wrong places. It's what we do. We look for life and love in all the wrong places. And sadly, sin is like a cancer cell it doesn't remain static. If it's not attended to, it's going to grow, it's going to multiply, and eventually it's going to require extremely invasive surgery to cut it out. So like that pain in your tooth, sin is going to grow. And eventually, if you don't deal with it, it's going to require major surgery. God will see to it. Now, what's the connection between sin and guilt? Well, in the world of psychology, guilt is classified only as a feeling or an emotion. A feeling or emotion that comes as a result of behaving in a bad way. That's what the world will tell you. But just possessing guilt is not the same thing as repenting. And theologically, yes, we should feel guilty when we sin, but that's only half the story. Because biblical guilt is a verdict. It's a verdict of sorts. You and I are objectively guilty anytime we violate God's law. And so from a Christian perspective, guilt includes both of those things. The objective reality that you have violated God's command 
and the feeling or the negative emotion that comes from that as we realize what we've done. Okay, so biblical guilt is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. We should feel it because it's objectively true. We're guilty. Now, what about this term remorse or regret? Because oftentimes that guilty feeling we have in our, in our soul when we sin, that can cause a, a sort of a slight, a cousin emotion, which is regret, when we go, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, right? I'm guilty, I know that, but then I say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's regret or remorse. But once again, just having remorse is not repentance. And this gets confused all the time. Just because I feel bad about it and I go, ah, I shouldn't have done that. That is not repenting. In fact, we have an archetypal example of that truth in the Gospels, in the life of Judas Iscariot. In the Greek New Testament, Judas is said to have regretted betraying the Lord. He regretted it. Metamelomai is the verb here, and it's not the same language used to describe what Peter went through over his denials of the Lord. Judas regretted his actions, but because he had no hope beyond himself, once he felt that remorse, he had nowhere to turn to, so he chose suicide. That regret got him nowhere. Peter, on the other hand, responds with brokenness and humility, and the Lord brings about true repentance in him. So biblical guilt is healthy. When it's understood correctly, regret falls far short of where we need to be. And then let's talk about that, that next term, shame. This is a big one. Guilt and shame tend to be lumped together in theological discussions as if they're two sides of the same coin, but there is a very important difference. Very important. Let me put it on the screen so you get this. While guilt focuses on the offense that's been committed, shame focuses on the offender. In other words, we feel guilty about what we've done. We feel shame about what we are. I'll let you process that for just a second. Now, there is an aspect of shame that's biblically healthy because in it, we look at the truth of who we are as a result of original sin that we are fallen creatures, that we are inherently flawed sinners in need of God's grace. That is a healthy thing. That shame is healthy to say, yep, that is actually who I am because I'm born into original sin. But there's a very real danger that comes with staying there. This is important. In recognizing how corrupted we are by the fall, a person can come to the false conclusion that therefore he or she is unworthy of being accepted or loved by God. I'm too bad. I'm too flawed. I'm too depraved. So if it's not properly channeled, shame can drive a person into some ugly places. This idea of I just sit in the weeds for the rest of my life and beat myself up because I can't be seen by the Lord. If shame isn't harnessed as a means to an end, it can be destructive. And the me it's the means. It's, it's like the the tunnel that cuts through the mountain to get to the right destination, which is repentance. So shame is important, but it's got, it can't be the end in itself where I just, I'm just ashamed all the time. No, it cuts through that mountain so we get to where we need to be. See, there's an interesting difference between believers who feel biblical guilt versus those who wallow in unbiblical shame. Those who feel the pangs of guilt will focus on what they've done the violation of God's law, and that's good, and that's going to lead them to who they've offended in that behavior, who is God. And it's going to lead us towards God because we know he's the offended party. 
That's a positive direction. It takes us towards restoration. But that doesn't happen with people who are stuck in shame. Their feelings and their emotions tend to drive them where? Deeper inward. Deeper inward. Not towards the Lord, but into themselves. They end up seeing themselves as so inherently bad that they're beyond saving. They'll begin to think that I'm defective, I'm undesirable, I'm unlovable. So rather than move positively towards restoration of relationship with God, what shame does, if you sit in it, is is it causes you to hide from God. To hide from it. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? They could have dealt openly and honestly with their sin. Instead, they hid from God. Which again, we chuckle at that, but do we not do the same? If you don't understand shame and you don't use it to get you to repentance and you wallow in it and start going nothing but inward, you will end up saying, I can't allow God to see this. I will not talk to God about this and I will hide it from him. I will keep trying to cover it. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's spiritually destructive. So how can we acknowledge the healthy aspect of guilt but avoid that destructive aspect of shame? Well, This is one of the primary subjects that John Calvin dealt with in his day, in his writings. He viewed repentance as consisting of two things, the putting to death of the flesh and the putting on of life in the spirit. He viewed it as a radical change from old life to new life and this new identity through our union with Christ. He also recognized that it was a lifelong experience and there's no shortcut to it. He said, look, God is at work in the elect that they may employ their whole life life in the exercise of repentance and know that this warfare with the old man will be terminated only by death and then he added surely no one can embrace the grace of the gospel without applying his whole effort to the practice or the exercise of repentance it's a lifelong process and it's a hard process it's not designed to be easy And here's where it starts in Calvin's mind. The putting to death of the flesh begins with the sinner being dissatisfied with himself of hating his sin and grieving over it. That's that's not where it ends. That's where it starts. Let me say it again. Dissatisfied with himself, hating his sin and grieving over it. And what Calvin did was he pointed to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 about this this phrase he used, godly sorrow. I I want to look at the, the textual fast on this. Okay, so Paul's writing to the Corinthians about a previous letter he'd written to them. And he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Why? Paul, you're, you're, you're so mean. Why? He says, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. I'm not happy that you were sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, that it drove you to something important. It drove you to repentance. For you were made sorrowful, look at that, according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death, right? For behold what earnestness, what sincere feelings this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. That's the starting point, according to Calvin. It's an acknowledgement of guilt. It's a a healthy sense of shame that comes by God's will. It's his work in our hearts for the true believer. And that leads us through that mountain 
to the destination of repentance. But Calvin does give a caution. He is concerned about believers not processing shame correctly. He says, but let us remember that some limit must be observed that we may not be overwhelmed in sorrow. Calvin worried that overly sorrowful believers would end up in despair. And again, that that despair would cause the sinner to judge himself unworthy of God's compassion, unworthy of God's love, and therefore remain in hiding. That is never the goal. So the remedy for despair and unhealthy shame, he said, is very simple. It's to remember the goodness and grace of God, always. Always. To preach the truth of the gospel to oneself over and over again about the goodness and the grace of God. To be reminded that there is no sin too great for God to forgive. To be reminded that there is no sinner so bad that he can't be forgiven. We've got to sear those truths into our hearts and minds. This allows the believer to consistently come back to Jesus, who is literally our great high priest, who sits in the heavenly places to mediate our relationship with the Father, to constantly come back to our high priest whenever we sin, knowing that his blood sacrifice has cleansed us once for all and that we're united to him and alive by the Spirit. And this is what we see David do in these psalms. It's really beautiful. He doesn't say stuck in shame, even though he's done some awful things. We, we'll admit that, right? David has done some awful, awful things. Far, far worse than what most of us have done. But we all know we're just as ugly inside, right? But David doesn't stay stuck in that shame. He moves towards repentance. He will return to the Lord, to the one that he's offended, Why? Because he knows that Yahweh is the only Savior. Because he knows that Yahweh is the only one that can cleanse him and forgive him from his sins to restore the joy of his salvation. That's what we ultimately have to get, right? It's the only remedy is to come back to our high priest. You know, quit ignoring the the cavity in your mouth. It's only going to get worse. Come to the Lord. Come to your high priest. He loves you. So listen, friends, as the body of Christ, we have, to be, we have to walk this very fine line. When we talk about being sinners, when we talk about being totally depraved, we've got to walk this fine line. We've got to make sure we balance it with the truth that we are chosen and found in Christ, that we are cleansed by his blood, that we are loved and accepted by the Father. Those things can be true at the same time. That's the beauty of the gospel, is it not? Both realities have to be meditated upon regularly. And as we do, This is something to remember. Conviction is the work of the Spirit. Condemnation is not. It's not. It's the enemy who is the one who will push you towards unbiblical shame and feelings of unworthiness and feelings of of unlovableness and will try to cause separation between you and the Lord. That is not the work of the Spirit. That is the work of the enemy. It's the Spirit who will call us constantly to say, I'm going to break that down because you have a mediator between yourself and God and constantly push you back towards your great high priest. That's the work of the Spirit. Amen? So now let's talk about the turning point for David. Where does the shift happen in the Psalms where he finally uncovers his sin? Go back to Psalm 6 and look at verse 4. Psalm 6, 4. David says, return, O Lord, 
Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. And we've seen before, it's his, because of your steadfast or unfailing love. So in his agony, David now pleads for deliverance. But notice the key here. He pleads, this is so important for us, not on the grounds that, hey, I'm a really important guy. I'm the king of Israel. So come and, and forgive me. He doesn't plead on the grounds that he somehow deserves forgiveness. His plea is based solely on what? On God's unfailing love. On God's mercy. That's the only grounds by which we can come before the throne of grace. So David comes to the end of himself. He feels the burden of this healthy guilt and he knows he can't fix his problem. Man, if we could just get there and just say, I can't fix this. I need to throw myself completely on the mercy of God's throne. And so he ends his silence about his sin and he finally cries out for forgiveness. Now, go back to Psalm 32 and you're going to see this shift more explicitly. Psalm 32, 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I didn't conceal it anymore. I didn't cover it up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Finally, right, we see the good news. See, the penitential psalms are not primarily about the misery of being under the discipline of the Lord. This is what they're about. For that moment that we turn from our foolishness and we seek the Lord's face and we receive his cleansing and forgiveness. That's what they're really about. That process, that misery of being under discipline, that's up to you. How long will you hold out from coming to the throne of grace? David finally did it. I'm not going to ignore my sin. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to cover up. I'm not going to, listen, I'm not going to rationalize my sin away. Okay, well, I guess it was a sin, but here's why. Here's why I did that. I'm not going to make excuses or explain it away. He opens up every chamber of his heart for examination. And as we read earlier in Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Man. Now, it's important to note, as a child of God, forgiveness was always available for David. It was there for the taking. Ready? Ready and waiting for him as soon as he would agree with God about his guilt and his need for restoration. But confession was the path to get him there. And that's so important. And this is obvious wisdom. You see it in both the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs 28, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. In the New Testament, it's very clear in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. It's consistent. Consistent. So what comes next for David? Go back to Psalm 6 one last time and look at verse 8. We've talked about Hebrew parallelism in this and we, we see it being used here. David lays out an amazing threefold confidence that the Lord has not forsaken him. Remember, adultery, murder, treachery against the Lord, and yet God has not forsaken him. Hear that, church family. Hear the severity of David's sin and the fact that he knows here that he is not forsaken by God. 
Verse 8, depart from me, all, all you who do iniquity. Here's number one. For the Lord has heard the voice or the sound of my weeping. David is confident that the Lord has heard him. Number two, the Lord has heard my supplication or my, my plea for help, my cry for mercy. He has heard. And number three, the Lord receives or accepts my prayer. Look at it. Confident. Confident in what the Lord can do to wash away even the worst of sins. And look at the authenticity. I think this is important to see. David is not just casually strolling into God's presence here and saying, all right, Lord, I know I've done a couple things. He comes with weeping and with brokenness. Spurgeon once referred to the tears that we shed before the Lord as liquid prayers. And we should be willing to shed them. A physical manifestation of the heart, which shows that we're not just dealing with it on an external level, like putting on a garment of piety to say, oh, look how holy I am now, God, but actually pouring out real emotion, real feeling, real, real regret, real sh all these things before the Lord in tears. I mean, I'm going to ask you the question, do, do you shed tears over your sin? It's a hard, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because we tend to be kind of, we put up a wall of emotion, even in prayer. Do we shed tears over our sin? Do we have a true sense of what it means to practice idolatry and how much that offends God? If so, we'd probably weep some tears. Are we guilty at times of taking his mercy for granted? I know that question hit me hard this week. Because we can, we can be so convinced, and it's a beautiful thing to be convinced that I am cleansed by the blood of Christ, I'm a child of God, and then get out of balance and then say, well, then I can presume upon the Lord's grace. And I can treat it casually. But we can't. We can't. So there's a balance to be found here, friends. There's a, a balance between allowing our sin to lead us into despair and on the other side, not taking it serious taking it for granted. The Lord was so gracious to David here in spite of his stubbornness. How many of you guys would admit you're a little bit stubborn? David was stubborn about keeping quiet about his sin. And yet God was so gracious. Never forget the promise that we have in Christ that we have access to the throne of grace where the God of the universe is present. Imagine this. <laughs> the God of the universe is present, bending down, as it were, to hear our prayers, the prayers of his children. And we have access to that. And like the prodigal son who returned to the father in brokenness, right, and in humility, David here is immediately restored in his relationship with Yahweh. All it took was authentic repentance. And he's immediately restored. Now, last thing, flip over to Psalm 32 again, and we'll see this expressed beautifully in 32 7. How does David now describe the Lord? 32.7, you are my hiding place. You're my shelter. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. The same man, the same guy who in verse 4 complained about how heavy God's hand was upon him, now says, 
You're my refuge and my shelter. But that's what honest confession will do for the believer. To make that shift from a heavy hand of oppression to being a refuge and a shelter for you. Now, last thing. Go to the very top of Psalm 32. I'll close with this. Very top of 32, verse 1. Here's the, here's the conclusion at the end of the day. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How true are those words? Inscribe, you want to inscribe something on your wall like Augustine did? Inscribe those two verses on your wall. Or, you know what, tape it to your bathroom mirror if you don't want to mess up your wall. Tape it to your bathroom mirror, stick it in a sticky on the front of your computer screen, whatever it takes. This is a beautiful truth. In fact, it's so beautiful that Paul cited these two verses in Romans chapter 4. He cited them in his discussion about how God justifies the ungodly by grace and apart from works. He cited these two verses, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And this is what David learned, how blessed he was to receive forgiveness apart from anything good in him, because there wasn't much, apart from any of his good works and in spite of his awful sin. Because listen, just like, just like you and I, if David had been judged in the end based on his works, he would have been condemned right alongside us. But he recognizes this truth, how blessed to be justified by grace apart from works. And then you see in that another, th- another threefold confidence. Look what he says. My transgression is forgiven. And in the Hebrew, that means to be lifted and carried away. My sin is covered, meaning God puts it out of his sight. It's stricken from the record. And my iniquity is not imputed, which is a, an accounting term, right? It's not charged to my account. My ledger is completely clean. That, friends, is real forgiveness. Real forgiveness, declared by God, given by God, not earned by the sinner. That's the only forgiveness that saves what you see there. And this is why there's no greater joy than knowing that this is true. As we walk out of here this morning, to know that your sins are forgiven, there is no greater joy. We sing this amazing song all the time. It is well with my soul. Look at the words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. There's no better truth. Can we learn from David's process? There's a lot to be gleaned from this, amen? Let's bow our heads. Let's just spend some time. I'm going to lead us in in praying some of these principles from these psalms. And, and again, as I said last week, don't check out on me. Make this personal. Pray these things from your heart. Let's go to prayer. Lord, we are even now in your presence and the presence of the God of the universe. And that is an amazing thing, Lord, that we should not take for granted. Lord, that together as a body, we are actually coming into your throne of grace, seeking your face and knowing, Lord, right now that you hear us. You see into our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that we will get ourselves right with you this morning, that we will agree with you about our lives, 
about what our thoughts are, what our feelings are, everything about our hearts, that we would come into line with you, Lord. And so we pray this morning that you would have mercy on us, Lord. As we groan down here in these bodies of flesh and deal with sin, we plead for your mercy, Lord. Lord, hear our prayers. Behold our tears that we shed over the habitual sin in our life, the things we desire to turn from, Lord. Hear our prayers for deliverance. Father, give us a a healthy sense of guilt, but also, Lord, help us to reject the enemy's use of shame in our lives that would cause us to hide from you rather than run to you. Father, thank you for forgiving my sin. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have given me and my brothers and sisters a confident, a confidence, Lord, that we can approach your throne of grace by the blood of Jesus, that you've given us that access because the payment for our sin has been made. Lord, teach us to come quickly before you to confess our sin. Prevent us, Lord, from remaining silent as if it will just go away. And God, help us to praise you even this morning as we continue to sing. Praise you for being our hiding place, our refuge, and our shelter. Thank you for your word this morning, God, the way it instructs us, the way it challenges us, the way it encourages us. Help us now to sing, to sing your praises for you are worthy.